Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is Rico Tice, Senior Minister for Evangelism at All Souls Langham Place and co-author of Christianity Explored. So Rico, how do we hold to Jesus being a historical figure? Well, I did history and and ancient history at university. And simply, uh, some of the texts that are hostile talk about Jesus. So Pliny and Tacitus, they speak of Jesus. They don't like him, but they talk about him. And in fact, later we get monks who redact that because they don't like what's been said about Jesus, but they're redacting something that has been said. So I think that's what uh, we've got. We know that um, uh, hostile sources speak of him. What about, so how do we know? So how do we know about Jesus? Well, in terms of what we know, we've got the gospel accounts. So four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know they're eyewitness biographies. And, and John talks about his method in chapter 20. He says, Jesus did these things. They were seen by the disciples. The disciples wrote them down so that you may believe and have life. So there's a, a, a very clear process. There are stepping stones. He did them. They were seen. They were written down so that you can believe and you can have life. Now, what I've got to just add on this one is that we do as Christians believe in an open universe. So we think God made the world and he can intervene in the world he made. Now that means that there are miraculous things Jesus did, but that's because in order to show that Jesus is his son, he reverses the laws of nature. He raises someone from the dead. Now, a lot of people look at that and says, well, that just can't happen because it's against the laws of nature. And that's exactly the point. It is against the laws of nature, so we'll know it's God's son. And people saw it, and that's why they believed. They're going, this bloke, Jairus, has a 12-year-old daughter. She, she was raised from the dead. And, and actually, it's interesting that Paul, in the Acts of the Apostles, he says to the religious leaders, he says, these things didn't happen in a corner. Festus, you know these things happened. And because Festus has sent his people along to get them checked out. So as he's talking in Acts, He's, he, he's saying this has gone all over the ancient world because there is a reversal of the natural things by this man who's the son of God who comes. Now, now Jesus wasn't the first kind of religious spiritual figure even at his time or since. So how does Jesus differ from kind of the, many of the religious or spiritual figures that we see in history? Well, it's a great question. I think, well, there, there are many answers to it, but I think the, the first thing that I'd say is that he dies on a cross. This great teacher comes and then the culmination of his mission is he's naked up on a cross. Well, what do you make of that? Because all the other teachers, they draw men to them and other people do things for them. But Jesus comes as this teacher and he does something for me. He dies on the cross for me. At the heart of his ministry is he does that. He then rises from the dead. So Good Friday and Easter Day are the things that make, make it extraordinary because by rising from the dead, he opens up eternity. He says the coffin is no longer an exitless box. I've risen from the dead. I think that's historically checkable, again, in an open universe. So I, I'd say what makes him extraordinary is, is, is Good Friday and Easter Day. If you're checking out those things, that's the place you begin. You know, he dies on a cross. Why does he do that? He rises. What does that mean? At the end of Jesus' ministry, what did he leave? Well, at the end of his ministry, he leaves his resurrection. So there's no end to his ministry. I mean, that, 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 that's what, what, what I'd say. So Jesus lived and taught. He had a band of followers. He's tried in a Roman and Jewish court. He's sentenced to die. They string him up on a cross. They take him off the cross. They certify him as dead. He's put in a tomb. And then three days later, he's walking around again. Again, it's an open universe. God has intervened and raised his son from the dead. 
But that means that two things. One is you can objectively check out the resurrection. So Christian faith is three things. It's information, it's agreement with the information, and then it's trust in it. Information, Jesus rises from the dead. Agreement, well, it's against the laws of nature, but I, I can't see what else happened on that Easter weekend. Trust, I now act on that, I now follow it. So what does Jesus leaves? He leaves um, himself risen from the dead. By his spirit, his followers come to know him. But objectively, intellectually, we can check out the resurrection. Because it's interesting because most, say, great leaders that build a legacy, they've got buildings, they've got organizations, they've, they've, they've started kind of major kind of structured organizations, but you don't see that with Christian church, with the Christian church and the person of Jesus, do you? No, and that's where you've got to try and understand the work of God's Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist says, at Mark chapter one, verse eight, he says, I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with his Holy Spirit. How do you explain these fishermen? Jesus says to these, these fishermen, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They go and change the world. How does that happen? Well, the New Testament answer is, at Pentecost, they are given God's Holy Spirit. So these men are transformed. They become men who are prepared to die, men of radiant courage. But it's God's Holy Spirit within them, with the message of Jesus, that then transforms other people's hearts. The Roman world is transformed. Millions have been transformed since. I, I was transformed. I come from a tobacco family, not a Christian family at all. Uh, my godfather gets killed in a cliff fall when I'm 16 years old. No one has an answer to death. No one's spoken to me about death. A maths teacher says, when Christ rose from the dead, he rose to get you through death. I'm going, well, if that's true, it's the most important thing in the world. And I'm, I, I'm changed at that point. I've buried nine of my school friends. What do you do when you stand at the grave of a school friend? Well, you've got one thing to say. In Christ, there's hope. You can see this person again if they've trusted in Jesus. Well. That changes the world because life's very brief. Rika, when you became a Christian, when you decided to follow Jesus, what, 16 and 17, what was the response of the people around you? Well, I think I wasn't wise. So I think I look back on a 16, 17 year old, I thought if you shake them hard enough, they'll come to faith. I didn't realize that we just gently speak of Jesus and God is the one who opens people's blind eyes to who he is by his Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, the Bible also says that people are hostile to Jesus, not because it's not true, but because they know it's true and it's deeply inconvenient. And therefore, for a number of my friends who wanted to live their own lives with themselves as king, what I was doing, the aroma of Christ, was something that was, was something they didn't want and therefore there was a hostility. So I look back on that period and I see myself as lacking the Christian qualities of gentleness and patience and prayerfulness but also my contemporaries going, we don't want someone who's, who's Christian around here because we want to live for ourselves. We'll take God's gifts, but we'll ignore the giver. And, I, and I'm, I think that resulted in an isolation and quite a hard first two years coming to faith. When you came to faith, you talked about the change of giving you hope and a future. What other things changed? Well, I think, I think what Jesus does is he washes his disciples' feet. So I'm, one of the, I'm at one of these English boarding schools where um, I went when I was eight years old. I'm fine now. I've just about recovered from the experience. <laughs> My parents lived abroad. I get sent to this school. And, um, uh, uh, you know, these schools are, are not about producing service. They're not about producing servants. They're about conditionally loving you. So uh, we'll love you if you succeed. And therefore, rather like the ancient Roman world, you favor those above you who can pull you up the ladder, but you push down on those below you. And suddenly I become a Christian. I realize I've got to serve the younger boys in the boarding house. 
suddenly I become a Christian. I, I spend my gap year in the inner city of Liverpool. I, I don't do a gap year around the world. I go to Australia, which would have perhaps been what my brother did actually, went to Australia and New Zealand. No, I, I, I go to the inner city of Liverpool. I'm not trying to be pompous, but Jesus says you serve. So I become a youth worker in, in Liverpool in an urban priority area because that's what Christian faith says. Um, the Bishop of Liverpool, David Shepherd, who was an alumni of my school, came along. He said, if you're Christian, you'll come and spend your gap year in Liverpool because you should be serving. Well, well, that was, I mean, I think my family thought, what are, what's he doing, this boy? Well, it's because I'd come to faith. If you hadn't come to faith, what was your trajectory from a career point of view? What were you aiming at? Well, I think you're trying to make a name for yourself. You know, I think, I think when Babel is talked about, in um, Genesis 11, it's, it's saying we want to make a name for ourselves and I think that, that, that the problem is you become a Christian and those same self-centered um, desires are in place, although fortunately I've got such a stupid name, Rico Tice, it's not a great name to try and make it. A lot of people think I'm called T.K. Rice, which sounds like <laughs> number 42 at the takeaway. So, but I think there's that self sense of, of, of desiring self-honor and actually um, what the spirit of Christ does is it means you become a servant. So, so it's that sense that success in life is in serving. And I think that was the great, the great um, challenge. But then what happens is you find that the way God's made the universe is counterintuitive. So as you give your life away in service, you find it. That's what's extraordinary, because you're aligning yourself with the laws of the universe. The cross is at the center of the universe. As you give yourself in service, suddenly you find joy. If, you, if, you know, if you're utterly self-centered, there's profound emptiness. I love Samuel Butler, who wrote about two incredibly selfish people, Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle. He said this, how good of God to cause Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle to marry one another and so make two people miserable instead of four. <laughs> you know, selfishness is just vile. Jesus dies on the cross to, to, to forgive us for it. But then by his example and by his death for us, he calls us to be servants of others. Just, just following that up, how was Jesus different in his time to the kind of leaders around him? Well, you've got to understand the Roman world and, and the Jewish world. It, it was the cursus honorum was, was the system of government where, or, or, or the social system where the people below you, well, you trod on them to go up the ladder. You, you were dependent on, on, on those above you so that you'd eventually maybe become consul or even emperor, but you trod on those below you. Jesus comes along and he serves those below him. Again, you know, he strips down to, to his waist. He washes his disciples' feet the night before he dies. I mean, this is unheard of. Peter says, what are you doing? The teacher doesn't do this. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you do it. So it's, it's this challenge of service. I was speaking to, to someone the other day, and uh, they've been working out in um, the most difficult areas in, in the world. And she said, uh, uh, this girl, um, Edwina Thompson, she said, why is it wherever I go, the most difficult places I go, I find Catholic nuns? You know, these women who've given their lives to serving in the most difficult places. And it's because the call of Christ is to serve and to, to, to serve those who, who have nothing. Now, the church may not be doing that, but that doesn't mean they're following their master. You know, if we're following him, that's what we should be doing. Did the early church follow Jesus? I mean, what were the sort of things that the early church picked up on that were uh, following Jesus' example of service? Well, do you know what I love about Mark's gospel, the gospel accounts, is no, the early church failed. I mean, you know, you've got the disciples wandering along and they're going along to Capernaum. And Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the road? They're quiet. He says, guys, what were you arguing about? And they were arguing about who was the greatest. So in the early church, you know, at the start in the, in the, in the book of Mark, these guys don't, don't appear to be converted because they are consumed with self-seeking, not service-seeking. 
And then the next chapter, chapter 10, James and John, you know, they say, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want? We'd like to sit either side of you in your glory. So in other words, now what are they going to sit on? Cushions? Stools? No, they want a throne from which to boss people. And so what we see is this blindness to the call to serve. In, and, it, and honestly, at the end of Mark's Gospel, you don't know if anyone's converted. Apart from the blind man Bartimaeus, he might be able to see, but it seems as though no one can see who Jesus is, apart from the centurion who's murdered Jesus. His eyes are open to, to who Jesus is. But then this call to serve is what begins to define the Acts of the Apostles. So you see, particularly in, the, in Paul's epistles, this, this call to serve, do good to all. And so gradually, the Holy Spirit causes the disciples to open their eyes that they must be servants. And Jesus says, you know, when he says, he says he picks up a little child in Mark uh, uh, chapter 9. He says, when I talk about service, I'm not saying you go to the cabinet in Jerusalem, which is what they all want. He says, you go to the creche and you get down on your knees and you say, what are the needs of this child? So the early church didn't get it, but gradually they did. And when they got it, they outlived everyone, which is why at one level, the Roman world went Christian. Yeah, yeah, because there was that whole sense. Certainly, in uh, in the first and the second century, there was there were there were or the second and the third century, there were um, plagues that many people died, and the church actually served in those times. No, people are staggered. I mean, you look at the ancient sources again. I'm a historian, and they just marvel at how these Christians live. They say, if the poor arrive, they bring them in. I mean, it's a great challenge now for us with the migrant crisis. You know, they give them shelter. They, 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 they bury not only their own dead, but other people's dead. Uh, they care for them. I mean, people were staggered. And, and of course, the, the word behind this is this word agape, which is love for the unlovely. The Roman world hadn't heard of it. It was coined by, uh, uh, with the Christian church emerging, because people say, well, how do you explain this love for the unlovely? Well, only because Jesus at the cross dies for the unlovely. His followers serve the unlovely. And so that's this transformational thing. And it would seem that, you know, we look at humility now, and while a lot of people may not pursue it, we do see it as a virtue. We do see it as a good thing in other people. The, the teaching of Jesus seems to have changed kind of how we think about leadership, doesn't it? Well, it does, although I, I've been thinking about this. It, it's very interesting as a Christian, this whole issue of humility, because your own experience of yourself is that you get worse and worse as the Spirit convicts you of your sin. Other people's experience of you is that actually, well, there's something different about this person. They are trying to serve. They seem to be motivated by different things. So for any Christian leader to start saying, well, you know, humility, we're doing great. No, your own experience of yourself. I mean, humility is honesty. You only see in your own heart a depravity, a self-seeking. But other people see something different. Now, this came to a head, I remember, a number of years ago when I was at All Souls, the church just here. We had our newcomers evening. And a guy came in and I said, you know, great to have you, just give us a bit of background spiritually. He said, I've been a Christian two months, but I'm not sure I'm Christian. I'm behaving so badly. I'm so depressed about my sin. I mean, it's just dreadful. And I sort of booked him up thinking, I've got to look at Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation in Christ. Is he relating to God through Christ's performance, not his own? Just that basic stuff of the Christian relates to God, relates to God through what Jesus has done, not what we do. But 10 minutes later, I met a, a young woman there and I said, why are you here? And she pointed across to the guy I'd spoken to. She said, that is my twin brother. He has changed so much in the last two months. I've come to see what's going on. So, I mean, that says it all. So his experience of himself was this conviction of sin, scaffolding going up by the Holy Spirit's work all over his life. Her twin sisters, now can I tell you, they know. I've got a twin sister. They know. They can see right through you. He goes, this is a changed man. What's happening? and change of the good. You know, suddenly he's more thoughtful, he's kinder, he's thinking of me like he never has before. 
And of course, it's the Holy Spirit. You explain that by the work of the Spirit. But I don't know if that helps on humility. I think, again, it's, it's counterintuitive. We, we don't think we're doing well at all. And sometimes we may, we may not be. Other people go, gosh, there's, there's something here that, 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 that is palpably different. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. You just said to us earlier that you work at All Souls, and uh, that's a, All Souls is a very international church. Where do you see the, the, the Christian faith working out service and humility uh, internationally or even nationally? Look, I think in terms of interpersonal relations, the absolute heart of what you're trying to work out with anybody is how do you do forgiveness? Doesn't matter what culture you're in. I mean, I've taken 200 weddings, and the most important thing I think I teach a wedding couple is that they need, they need two phrases to sustain their married life. I'm sorry I was wrong, and that's okay, I forgive you, or that's okay, I love you. Now, the mechanism of reconciliation for Christians is the cross. Because Jesus has forgiven me so much, I'm looking to forgive others. And so Colossians 3 verse 13, one of Paul's letters says, uh, bear with one another, forgive whatever grievances you have against each other, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now a grievance is a big thing. And yet how do you forgive? Well, as the Lord forgive you, so, forgave you. So you receive this forgiveness from God and that enables you to forgive others. Now, at All Souls, my church here, or in a marriage, or in a family, or in a company, the key issue is how do you forgive? Because if you don't forgive, then the intimacy disappears. So the Great Wall of China goes up between you because sin leaves a legacy. That's why the loneliest people at my church are in bad marriages, when they're not forgiving each other. You get into bed, the Great Wall of China's up between you. So, so you know, in terms of you say, how do you, how do you do life as an international community? Well, we understand the cross and we keep trying to forgive each other and repent. I'm sorry I was wrong, that's okay, I forgive you. But then you, you say, look, I'm battling to change, forgive me. You know, I'm saying to my wife, darling, I've got that wrong again, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm working to not just be remorseful, but to repent, to stop. And I think it's that cycle of confession and that cycle of, of forgiveness that actually not just keep my relationship with God going, but keep our interpersonal relationships going, that make Christian communities special. We acknowledge what's wrong, and then we seek forgiveness, and we ask God's help to change. Look, I don't know that we'd, you'd come across too many people anywhere in the world who would say forgiveness is a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's pretty generally kind of accepted. Why do we find forgiveness so difficult? Because it's costly. You see, when you look at the cross, you see Jesus dying in, in, in death and blood so that I could be forgiven and so that, he can, uh, so that I can forgive others. It's enormously costly to forgive. You have to take the pain within yourself. If I'm gonna forgive what they've done, I've got to absorb what they've done into me and say, okay, I'm gonna let that go. And people feel such anger, they can't do it. I, I've got a friend called, um, I won't tell you his name because it's confidential, but he works in, in uh, the Islamic world. He said, how do you stop a young Muslim man becoming a Christian? Tell him he's gotta forgive his enemies. That's how you stop him doing it. And it's incredibly costly to do that. But at the cross, I see Jesus taking my sin into himself. So as I follow him, I can seek to, look, I don't do this very well, ask my wife, but I'm seeking to, 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 to actually say, no, I'll take the hit from that. But where do I find the ability to do it? Forgive whatever grievances you have, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think Jesus has given me a three billion pound check. I can write them a 10,000 pound check. That, that's the issue, if I've been forgiven, 
so much by Jesus, a three, three, literally three billion pounds or whatever, I can say, okay, that's 10,000, that's a lot, but I can write you that check. Which doesn't mean it doesn't cost. It's hugely costly. And the person who just says, oh, just forgive them, doesn't understand that. That's why you've got to have a mechanism of reconciliation. And I'm saying it's the cross. And without the cross, I don't know how you do it. Now, I take weddings for anyone. I think, I think marriage is a great thing. So it's the building block of society. It's the best place for children to grow up. So people don't have to be Christian for me to take their wedding. But when I talk to them about how they do forgiveness, I get two responses. One is, we're now starting to say to each other, I'm sorry I was wrong, that's okay, I forgive you. And it's really changed things. But the second is, well, how do you keep, you know it's good, but how do you keep doing it? If they don't have the cross, if they just see some Galilean carpenter dying, where do they keep finding the strength to forgive when it gets hard? Just going back to the cross and staying on the, or just staying on the, the theme of the cross, why couldn't God have just wiped the slate clean? Why the cross? Because justice matters. You see, how I treat you matters to God and how you treat me matters to God and how we treat the world matters to God. That's why it's a great thing there's a judgment to come. It's a great thing there's a judgment to come because people have been profoundly hurt. And you know, there are girls in my church there who've been raped and nothing's been done. It hasn't been followed up. And you know, they're, they're sitting there having had this done and they have been raped and uh, the, the perpetrator has not been brought to justice. And we look to judgment day for justice to happen. And that goes right through history. There might be people listening now and they're, they're saying, you know, they're victims as well as rebels in God's world. They're victims. They've had something terrible happen. I'm saying it matters to God. There'll be a day of judgment. But on that day of judgment, who pays for sin? Either I can pay myself in a place called hell. And Jesus is the theologian of hell, the most loving man that ever lived. He speaks again and again of hell. Or I can allow Jesus to pay as he dies on the cross. So justice matters, sin must be paid for. You can pay for yourself in hell, or you can allow Jesus to pay. But he pays by dying on the cross. So there's only one way to get to hell. The only way you get to hell is you trample over the cross of Jesus. He blocks the way to hell as he's crucified. He says, don't go there. I'm paying for you to come home and to be forgiven. But if you want to go to hell, the way you do it is you trample over the cross. You say, that doesn't matter. By my own decency, God will accept me and uh, you, walk, you walk straight into a place of judgment, which again, I say, is a good thing. So what should someone do? If they're watching and listening and considering all of this, and they think, wow, I really need to do something about that, what should they do? Well, the first thing you've got to do, and can I say this will be very important for all your relationships, not just with the Lord, but others, is you've got to accept that in God's world, you've rebelled against him. You've got to accept that you have not lived as you should in his world. And that might mean You've made good things God things, like the kids or their education or the career. But you've taken the gifts of God, you've put God on one side, and you've lived your own way. So you've got to accept you've sinned. Secondly, you've got to believe that Christ died for you. That when he died on the cross, he died for you in your place. It's an amazing thing. The cross isn't just, as I say, this Galilean carpenter dying. Thirdly, you've got to count the cost, which is lovely. It's wonderful to count the cost because it means that you're for what Jesus is for, you're against what he's against. Jesus died for you, look at his life, it's a perfect life, can't you trust him to lead you? So you count the cost, that'll mean turning away from stuff, but everything he calls you to turn away from you is not beneficial, he knows what's best. And then lastly you say, having accepted you've sinned, believe Christ died for you, counted the cost, lastly you say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross, I'm so sorry for my wrongdoing, Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit 
and be my Lord and Master. So it's an amazing thing that we can say a prayer because all the work has been done by Jesus. And is the prayer a formula or is, or is, is it a heart response to God? I mean, how, can you get that wrong? Well, that's interesting. I mean, when it comes to the prayer, the prayer is a, is a way of you repenting. So it's you saying, no, I'm no longer going my own way. I'm going God's way through what Christ has done, dying for me. That's what the prayer is. The prayer is, is, is a means of, of you saying, look, I'm turning around, I'm going your way. Here's the issue. Regeneration, that means whether your heart has been transformed is something that the Holy Spirit does. So people can pray that prayer, but don't think I trust it. I'm waiting to see if they've changed. So I'm waiting to see if the miracle of transformation has happened. So at one level, people pray the prayer and I say, great, well, that's a start. Let's now see if, 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 if it's genuine. We'll see if this is really if, if God has really regenerated you, and we'll see that because your twin sister comes in the door and says he's changed so much. So, yeah, the, I think the prayer is a way of making a start, but it's not a big thing. The big thing is that the Holy Spirit has, has begun to transform your heart, regenerate you, which means that deep down you'll start, and this might be amazing, you'll start longing to go God's way. You'll start wanting to, to please him, even though at the same time there'll be so much of what the Bible calls your sinful nature you're fighting against. Final question. This series is called Jesus the Game Changer. How is Jesus the Game Changer for you? Well, I've buried nine school friends. And I know life is short. And when I stand at the graveside of a mate, you say these words from Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field but the wind blows in its place and remembers it no more. So people can flourish. Um, I've been to Australia. It is a magnificent country, and there are people flourishing all over Australia, but it's so short. I'm in the city of London here. It's a great world city. People flourish, and they think they don't need God because they're taking his gifts but ignoring him, but it's over so quickly. But amazingly, uh, in Psalm 103 later says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. So if I link up with God, he lives forever and I'll live forever. This piece of dust, I'll live forever because I'm linked up with God through what Jesus has done. Now for me, can I tell you that's a total game changer because it gives me eternity. It means there's a future, which I believe will be back here in a renewed creation. God's made the world, he can re remake it. How do I know that? The past certainty of the resurrection gives me a future hope. And therefore, as I live my life, I live my life in relationship with God, knowing I have a profound future. And now, as I follow Jesus, the job is to serve whoever I meet, which I do badly. It's pathetic, really. But I know what I'm meant to do, and I do that. I find it fills me with joy. So it's just a, it's just a wonderful thing to follow him. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video, and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax-deductible and non-tax-deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Olive.